another one of our lovely Wednesday shows with Kelly Victory. She'll be with us, of course, just in a minute. Our guest today is Dr. Byron Bridal. He is an associate professor of viral immunology at the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. Research has focused on development of vaccines against infectious diseases, engineering immunotherapies for cancers, studying host immune responses against viruses, uh, and he has been in the center of all this for quite some time, and I'm very keen to hear what he has to say. Uh, it's odd to me and sort of, again, I, I just, the, the people um, uh, were critical on Twitter uh, that we're speaking to a virologist today because he's not a clinician, like a pediatrician or, a or an adult internist. And then when we speak to pediatricians or adult internists, infectious disease doctors and cardiologists, we're crit criticized for not speaking to virologists. So we will get to each person, each discipline in its time and talk to the people who are expert in their field and try to get something out of each of these conversations. I've taken away something every time. Let's get right to it. Our laws as it pertains to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. At the end of this conversation with our guest, uh, Dr. Kelly and I may spend a little time talking about the uh, tragedy with the NFL player uh, resting on the football field. Again, I did a lot on that yesterday, and uh, she's had some thoughts on this today. Uh, good news, uh, we're hearing he's improving. He's moving towards autonomous respiration. Uh, he may get off the ventilator soon. And this is, what, three days after the event. It's a very, very excellent sign in terms of his recovery from anoxic encephalopathy, though the recovery itself of his full brain function may take quite some time. Has so, it been three days? Uh, it happened on Sunday or it happened on Monday? Monday. Monday. So it's two days. Two days. I was thinking that was a Sunday. All right. Uh, and so she and I will talk about it a little bit perhaps at the end of the show. And she got a bit of grief for daring to wonder what his vaccine status was, just musing about it, and was attacked by the very people who took the position previously that everyone's vaccine status should be known to everyone. And the vaccine status should determine everything you are able to do. So it's odd that suddenly we have to hold back on vaccine status when before that was something that was mandated for public domain. But just an odd sort of a quirk of uh, really social media, frankly. <laughs> so let's bring our guest in, Dr. Byron Brindle. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, let's just start with your concerns. Uh, you've been worried about these vaccines for a time. What's the source of that concern and what's the mechanism for it? Yeah, first of all, thanks a lot for having me on your show, Dr. Drew. I really appreciate it. Um, and and I'm uh, looking forward to the opportunity to share um, some of my insights with your audience. So, yeah, so Thank the you. vaccines we're talking about, I, I mean, it's the interesting thing. A lot of people just sort of refer to the vaccine or the vaccines these days. But as a vaccinologist uh, and somebody who loves vaccines, I recognize there's a whole uh, array of vaccines. So in my world, um, I like to specify, and, and so we're talking about the COVID-19, uh, and, and, and honestly, I have to sort of put in quotation marks vaccine, uh, because um, maybe that's even a starting point right there. 
uh, because as a vaccinologist, I can tell you that these current, what we're calling COVID-19 vaccines, uh, do not actually meet the traditional definition of a vaccine. Uh, the traditional definition, basically the definition that you in the United States had prior to the summer of 2021. Um, and then if you look at, for example, I, I'm in Canada. So if you look at the Canadian definition, uh, it, they would be as far from, we define what we call an ideal vaccine. And they would be as far from an ideal vaccine as one could possibly get. Um, and so let me just explain that for a moment. <laughs> so the, the traditional definition of a vaccine, uh, up, uh, as posted by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, up until the summer of 2021, was that these were, these were medical products that would induce immunity. Immunity was the key term in the definition. They would induce immunity against the disease. And it's interesting because the US CDC still holds the same traditional definition for immunity. You can find that on their website alongside the definition of a vaccine. And immunity is to be protected from a disease and um, protected against transmitting the causative agent of that disease to somebody else. Uh, and that's what we think of when we think about the term vaccine, right? A vaccine is something that we take because it's going to protect ourselves from the disease and it's going to protect those around us from getting the pathogen that causes that disease. So when we're talking about COVID-19, what we're talking about, of course, is SARS coronavirus 2, which is the virus that in some people that get infected with it can cause the disease we call COVID-19. And the, the definition was changed actually to accommodate these novel you know, vaccine technologies, such that now the US CDC defines it as um, a medical product that induces an immune response against a disease. And that's it. There's no longer the requirement. I have, I have, for if I can interrupt you, if I can, if I can interrupt you a little bit, I, I'm sure. sort of sympathetic to that definition because the whole, you know, I, I'm sure you're, you know, more versed than I am in the history of vaccine therapies. But back to the cowpox and you know early colonial days in America, uh, that really wasn't preventing disease. It was causing milder disease, oftentimes, and wasn't even necessarily preventing transmission. And so, to me, anything that does help fight the disease, I, I'm cool with that. I understand they did adjust it, though. That was kind of interesting, but they did. Yeah. But let, let me yeah. ask you this: it Is okay. I, I know where you're going to go with this, and I'm going to I'm going to jump a little bit ahead. I've been reading okay. a little lately about to, to me the the in terms of these so-called ideal vaccines. Covaxin is actually our best vaccine. And the fact that that's not being distributed around the world is just in, weird to me, number one. And then number two, I'm really worried about the spike protein because I'm starting to see stuff from Novavax, which is very different. It's not an MRI vaccine. It's a more traditional sort of protein, you know, in a, in a virus kind of, kind of uh, vaccine. Uh, and so kind of address that for me. What, what do you, you know, what's going on with those two vaccines? And then I'll let you roll back to mRNA. Sure. Um, well, okay. So any, anything to do with the spike protein. So I guess one of the things that, uh, as, as an academic scientist, I'll, I'll just tell you, I, one of my jobs is, uh, you know, I'm, I, my salary is paid for by taxpayers and uh, the institution that I work at is funded through taxpayers. And so, uh, I consider myself a public servant and when asked questions, I provide, um, uh, my expert interpretation of the science. And what I really look at is the overall weight of the science. So, when it comes to COVID-19, um, I really wasn't doing anything differently than I have my entire career. But uh, one of the things that got me into trouble is related directly to what you just brought up, um, Dr. Drew, and that is the, the, the spike protein. So I gave an interview about a year and a half ago, and I guess there were, there were three components to that interview that, I mean, 
to me, they were just factual. And as somebody with, with um, as an expert in the field, I, I was quite confident in the science. Um, but three things were considered to be exceptionally controversial at that time. And so the first thing is, it was in an interview, I was asked one question. I was asked if Moder the Moderna vaccine could potentially, uh, might be causing, or it might be associated with myocarditis in young males. Um, and and I, I postulated that that's a possibility. Right? There's a, there was a potential for there to be a link to myocarditis. Uh, a year and a half later, that's fact now, well accepted as fact, and it's on, on all the vaccine labels. Um, but the second thing, which really gets the heart of your, your question, is the spike protein. Um, I recognize that the mRNA technology, and, and this relates to these newer vaccines you're talking about as well, because the common thing about them is the spike protein. Um, but that the mRNA technology, the, these vaccines, were not staying in the injection site, uh, but rather getting distributed throughout the body. And the reason why that was of concern to me was because the spike protein is a highly bioactive molecule in the human body. And if it, gets, if it were to get systemically distributed, there are a lot, a lot of potential mechanisms of harm that it could cause. Uh, and so what's shared by all the vaccines is targeting the spike protein. The theory being that if you generate neutralizing antibodies against the spike protein, the virus cannot infect our cells because it uses the spike protein to get inside our cells. Um, and so all the vaccines have that. But these newer vaccines as well, even though they're more traditional technologies, uh, and one of the things that I like about them is the, the dose of the spike protein can be much better controlled. But there's still, there's still um, aspects of this, uh, the lipid nanoparticle delivery technology, for example. Um, and again, the lipid, it's the lipid nanoparticle technology that has traditionally been developed to promote wide distribution of whatever the cargo is that it's carrying, whether it be the spike protein itself, or whether it be the messenger RNA encoding the spike protein, or historically what they were used for more commonly was as a drug delivery system. So when, as it pertains to the lipid nanoparticle, uh, Two two things. I we we have a um, biotech um, expert that comes on our show once in a while, and she was alerting me to two things as it pertains to what you're getting into now. And I'm sorry I'm jumping around a lot, but but I, I know Kelly is going to be a little more have a better flow. And what she I just have a bunch of odd questions I wanted to get out right away. That's fine. But this is going to be the next one. This is the next one. Uh, she alerted me a to the fact that the spike proteins and the mRNA that are produced by the mRNA vaccine actually have not just the spike protein, but also fragments and faulty folding proteins that are produced. And we don't know, we don't have any idea where they're going or what they're doing. And she has another theory that the, there are several lipids in the, in the lipid nanoparticles. And one of them is a cholesterol that has been observed to break down into phosphatidylethanolamine. And she is postulated that that might be one of the mechanisms for excess clotting. Now, the, my pushback on that particular theory is the time course is hard for me to understand because people are getting clotting in all kinds of strange time courses. But I'll let you just kind of struggle with those two observations. Sure. Well, well. So I, I would agree with those observations, but in fact, what we have to understand is is there's actually a plethora of potential mechanisms of harm. Um, and I guess, and, and I, again, I said if the spike protein gets systemically distributed, the a year and a half later, uh, again, that was very controversial a year and a half ago, but now it's in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. There's numerous citations now. Um, even the um, CEO of Moderna has openly talked about the uh, 
the distribution of, of their vaccine, the, the systemic distribution and the spike protein can get to the heart and so on. And so we have papers now that have shown, you know, the spike protein getting to the heart muscle and people um, getting into circulation, um, albeit at, at what appears to be low concentrations in most people. But there are there's other literature showing proof of principle that you can get in some people up to a hundred fold higher concentrations, getting up to concentrations that are quite concerning. Um, we also are seeing the mRNA. Uh, this was recently published in a daughter journal of the Lancet, a very well-respected medical journal, um, showing that the messenger RNA from these vaccines getting into breast milk, for example. So the, the systemic distribution now is, is widely accepted. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of, it's this fact now. Um, and, and so the problem is this. There, there's the mechanisms that you just mentioned, for example, and, and there's other issues. So, for example, lipid nanoparticles themselves, uh, they also have um, what we call cationic lipids. These can be potentially harmful in cells. Uh, the spike protein uh, can, on its own, get into circulation. Um, it, for, so, for example, if the mRNA is damaged on one end, you can get a version of spike protein that's secreted rather than anchored in the membrane of the cell. It's supposed to be on the surface of the cell like a flag. Uh, or if you get de degradation of that cell, it could be released. Also, we know that the spike protein gets released through exosomes, which are these little bubbles of fat that bleb off of cells to communicate with other cells. And when this happens, when the spike protein, if it were to get into circulation, it can bind to the ACE2 receptor. Uh, that's, that's the receptor that the virus uses to get into cells. And if it binds to the ACE2 receptor, it can cause things like activation of platelets, and that can promote clotting of blood. Um, the other thing is, uh, one of my most major concerns, for example, myocarditis. We usually see the incidence of myocarditis is greatest after the second dose than after the first dose. There's also several publications that have shown that side effects tend to be more severe and more common after um, the second dose. But also what's interesting, also after the first dose in people that have previously been infected with SARS coronavirus 2. So in other words, the vaccines, um, the side effects tend to be more prolific in those that have already mounted an immune response against SARS-CoV-2. And this is the, the one of the key concerns that I have is, like I said, the, the, the spike protein is designed in, the, in these vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines, to be anchored to the surface of a cell. And that's to activate an immune response. And so this is the thing. Probably, it takes about a couple weeks, up to a few weeks, for an antibody response to peak. But once you have those antibodies, and, and so I'm, I'm guessing that by the time you have people have mounted a good spike-specific antibody response, there's probably not a lot of the spike protein left because it will have degraded, it will have been cleared from the body. But those antibodies can last a long time, especially we know for sure that it's not very durable, those antibody responses after the vaccines are given, but it's quite durable after natural infection. And this is the problem. Once somebody has mounted an antibody response and then you give that second dose, or if somebody has naturally responded to the virus and then gets a first dose, as soon as our cells start expressing that spike protein, they become a target for our immune response. And our immune response is actually going to start killing our own cells, right? Um, and this, this is the problem with the systemic distribution of the, of the spike protein. And to me, that's actually one of my most concerning potential mechanisms of harm. You know, uh, and again, just I, I think simplistically, I think clinically a lot, and and I know we're getting we're going to go into the weeds of these uh, biochemical mechanisms and all, but it just kind of seems to me like excessive production, something as simple as the excessive production of spike protein, 
the widespread excessive production could be a, a the whole story. It could be the, the entire story, because what you know, we're what, what sort of the the patho, pathological specimens suggest that there's just a too much of this stuff flying around, and 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 as I'm sure you'll get into the the mRNA, you know, machinery uh, may be producing more than we had anticipated, particularly with this widespread distribution. Is is at least that accurate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, we, we've seen, for example, with the myocarditis, that the incidence of, of myocarditis is much higher with Moderna's vaccine. And, and what, related to what you were just saying, there's a higher dose of the messenger RNA that's being administered. Um, and, and you're right, what, what people have to understand. So, for example, the newer vaccine technologies, well, so as the newer vaccines that you were mentioning earlier. Right, on, old technologies, show, like, you newer vaccines. vaccines. It's a, a yeah, old, yeah. older, see, older, see, older platforms. Yeah. Older you, platforms, newer vaccines. exactly. And yeah. you see, uh, and that's what I had mentioned um, in response to to you bringing that up was that was that there's more controlled dosing, and so what what people often yeah. forget is what what's being administered, like what and what's being measured in terms of a dose when when these messenger RNA vaccines are given. It's the dose of messenger RNA, yeah. and all the messenger RNA is is a blueprint. And I like to explain it to people as being equivalent to the a blueprint that a that a home builder would use. A home builder is not limited to building one house from one blueprint, yeah. right? They can build multiple no. homes from the same blueprint. And it's the same thing with our cells. Uh, our cells are able to produce multiple copies of the spike protein from a single messenger RNA. And this is where, um, and there's a lot of variables. So part of it's gonna be uh, like this, how much gets um, systemically distributed is gonna vary widely from person to person. Uh, it's gonna depend how much of the initial dose might accidentally get injected yeah. into the bloodstream, for example, right. et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, there's also there's also this consideration, especially I get concerned, uh, you know, with with children and, in particular, because it can depend on what cells take this up, uh, because the number of copies of the spike protein you're going to get from the messenger RNA is going to correlate quite strongly with the metabolic activity of the cells that it gets into. Yeah. So in other words, that if makes, it gets into mm -hmm. cells that are fairly quiescent, Riding. you know, uh, that aren't mm -hmm. replicating rapidly, you're probably not going to get a lot of spike protein mm -hmm. produced. But if it gets into highly metabolically active cells, and this is why I'm concerned with kids, right? Um, because if you, you give um, the same dose to a, say, you know, 90 pound, 12 uh, year old girl, for example, um, who's going through an enormous growth spurt, right? The chances are there's going to be a lot more highly metabolically active cells. And so there's, there's this amplification step, which is very hard to predict. So every individual essentially ends up with their own unique dose and we can't really Listen, predict I love, what that dose I, is going I, I to be. I get it and I and I love this explanation because I've been saying again clinically I'm not seeing the same kind of concerns that I see in these younger patients and this would be the mechanism it's and it's an easy mechanism to point at it, it of course it makes perfect sense all right before I bring Kelly in one last quick question you mentioned two of the three things that got you in trouble what was the third thing that got you in trouble uh, okay, yeah. So it was the um, myocarditis. Well, I, I guess I clustered the two together because uh, the second one was the the biodistribution, the fact that these mm. the messenger RNA vaccines do get widely distributed throughout the body. Uh, it's interesting because when I brought that up at the time, I, I wasn't surprised by that per se. Why I was very surprised at the time when I saw the uh, Pfizer's biodistribution data was it actually matched all of the historical, my historical understanding of how these lipid nanoparticles work. Like I said, companies 
pharmaceutical companies were so excited about using these lipid nanoparticles to deliver drugs, for example, to get into the brain, to treat Alzheimer's and brain yeah. cancers sure. and, and Parkinson's sure. disease. So what surprised me was Stem cells. That, that the public messaging that I was receiving, everybody was receiving, was that these were like traditional vaccine technologies. I was told directly by my Canadian public health officials that this stayed at the injection site with a little bit going to the draining lymph nodes, which is where you activate the immune response. So what surprised mm -hmm. me was not that there was the wide biodistribution. It was that the public messaging made me assume that there were some proprietary changes that had been made to the lipid nanoparticles that kept them from being widely you know, dis distributed throughout the body. Oh, interesting. So that's what, so that, so oh, that's what surprised me was that I realized, whoa, there's some a real disconnect here between the science. So the science is as I understood it to be, um, but it doesn't match the public messaging. Um, and then the second thing was the, the, the bioactivity, because again, at the end of the day, you say, what's the issue if the spike protein gets distributed throughout the body? But the problem now, uh, Dr. Drew, is that there are uh, about 20 different known bioactivities that could potentially cause harm with this spike protein. Yeah. Um, and that's the issue. So, so my concern All was right. wide systemic distribution of a protein that can cause harm if it gets widely distributed. So those are that's kind of and, and, part and, two and three that we're and that is that I'm sure is precisely where Dr. Kelly Victory will pick up. We're going to take a little break and be back with her right after this. Sounds good. Want to give the gift that keeps on giving? Genucel skincare keeps everyone on your holiday list looking young and refreshed. And who doesn't need that type of luxury, especially over the holiday season? Genucel has so many products that Susan and I love. Genucel's XV Moisturizer locks in moisturizer on top of the serums, making dry spots a thing of the past, especially great with the colder climate and all the dryness of our skin, right? And with Genucel's Immediate Effect 2 eye cream, you can see the results in as little as 12 hours, guaranteed or your money back. Susan loves Genucel's DFS Vitamin C Serum, the new deep firming serum, as well as the Hyaluronic with C and Lactic Acid which hydrates your skin and makes fine lines a thing of the past while hopefully preventing future wrinkles from forming. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Take advantage of amazing holiday savings by going to genucel.com, and you will get 60% off with a special holiday stocking stuffer when you subscribe to my favorites package at genucel.com slash Drew, and all orders are upgraded to free shipping for the rest of the holiday season. We will get it there quickly. Use code Drew at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire order. That is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Drew. My guest is Philip Patrick. He is a precious metal specialist, trains at University of Redlands. He has spent years as a wealth manager at Citigroup, and his current position is with Birch Gold Group. So gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven, particularly in times of great turmoil, uh, much like our present moment, I imagine. Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has, has always been about wealth preservation, right? Gold has 
it always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, you know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble. These times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are different, the solution needs to be different as well. So I encourage everyone to get informed. And we have a lot of good information here to help your listeners. Just a reminder, I am not a financial advisor and I do not give out financial advice nor investing advice. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out now. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew and secure your future with gold. Do it now. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. This episode ends here. The rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Dr. Kelly Victory, I give you our guest. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bridal. Thanks so much for joining us. I know your uh, life, your world has been upside down uh, for the duration of this debacle, as has mine. Um, really happy that you could could be here. I'm going to um, take us back, if you don't mind, to sort of the 50,000 or maybe 100,000 foot level to talk a little bit about mRNA, um, just for the purpose of our, our viewers. Although these uh, injections, uh, and I won't call them vaccines either, and we'll go back to that. These mRNA injections are new. mRNA technology is not new. Uh, it, people, scientists have been working on this for well over a decade. We've had the good fortune to have uh, people like Dr. Robert Malone on to talk about it and others. But I would like it if you could at least give us a brief sort of you know uh, review from your perspective of why exactly there's never been an mRNA shot or vaccine launched successfully previous to these. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, a great question. So, I, I guess you know we could start with the lipid nanoparticle technology because that was a key. That's a key platform for delivering these messenger RNA molecules. Well, so I guess let's let's start with those. So. Natural messenger RNA is incredibly unstable, uh, it, it, incredibly fragile. So, for example, my my research team works with it all the time. Uh, if you you have to use um, extremely you know sophisticated research techniques to make sure that you don't contaminate a sample with messenger RNA, uh, because there's all kinds of things in the environment that can degrade them. So they're extremely fragile. W once you have messenger RNA. Uh, you typically have to store it in uh, what we call an ultra-low freezer, you know, minus 80 degrees. And that's exactly what we saw at the start of the rollout, right? That these messenger RNA vaccines had to be stored uh, at uh, ultra-low temperatures, uh, which was an issue for the, uh, for the you know, uh, worldwide rollout. So that was one of the first problems. They're very fragile. So one of the huge advancements was creating synthetic, synthetic um, messenger RNAs that would be much more resistant to degradation because at the end of the day their, their, their purpose is to serve as a blueprint a genetic blueprint they encode a protein uh, and once these messenger rnas get inside a cell they use the machinery in the cell 
to translate that blueprint into whatever protein it encodes. So for the COVID-19 shots, that is the, the spike protein from SARS coronavirus 2. Uh, so so the, the, these synthetic messenger RNAs are, they, they last a lot longer. And there's been debates actually about how long they can last in the body. Um, and, and it turns out it's a lot longer than we had originally anticipated. So that's, that's one of the breakthroughs that had to occur. The second thing is getting the messenger RNA into cells. And that's where the lipid nanoparticle technology comes in. Uh, th these are small bubbles of fat and the uh, messenger RNA molecules, these little genetic blueprints get packaged inside these fat bubbles. And these fat bubbles are designed to, when they come into contact with our cells, our, our cells are essentially large bubbles of fat. So all of our cells are surrounded by a, a layer of fat. So when these lipid nanoparticles come into contact, they confuse with the, the cell, our cell membrane and basically um, uh, infuse the messenger RNA into the interior of the cell, where it can then be used to um, manufacture the, the spike protein. Now, these lipid nanoparticles, again, what I want to point out is, uh, again, I, I personally was highly misled by the public messaging because I was told that these messenger RNA vaccines behaved every bit like a traditional vaccine technology, where they would stay at the injection site with a little bit going to the draining lymph nodes. And you always want your vaccine to go to the draining lymph nodes because the lymph nodes throughout our body, that's where our immune system actually gets activated. That's why when you get sick, for example, you'll have lymph nodes swell up. That's because the, your cells of the immune system are expanding to massive numbers within those lymph nodes. So that's why your lymph nodes swell. And then those cells leave the lymph nodes and go throughout the body and look for the pathogen to clear it from the body. Uh, but these lipid nanoparticles, you know, my understanding historically, they were never designed for that, uh, to stay at the site. They were in fact designed to be widespread throughout the body because the original goal of this technology was to use it for gene therapy. So that would be identifying, you know, a disease. So the, the idea being if there was a disease where you could define a genetic defect that was causing the disease, the idea was if you could replace that defective gene with one that um, functioned properly, you could potentially cure these otherwise incurable diseases. That was the original technology. And in order to achieve that, uh, people wanted uh, broad systemic distribution throughout the body to target potentially defective cells. And, uh, and this, that's what the slip and nanoparticle technology achieved. Um, and so now what we have is, uh, well, so the problem was that these the lipid nanoparticles themselves are quite inflammatory and synthetic messenger RNAs can grab the attention of the immune system. And the last thing you want for a gene therapy is to have your gene therapy delivery system activate an immune response because what it's going to do is it's going to clear out your gene uh your gene therapy vector uh, and, and it's going to destroy your gene therapy so this was the problem that, that people were running into so uh they thought well if people like dr robert malone right uh, thought about this and thought well if it's ca calling the attention of the immune system that's exactly what you want a vaccine to do so why not try and use it for the vaccine um, technology and that's what we've now attempted to do. And, and actually, um, so one point that's of interest is this current rollout of the messenger RNA vaccines is not the first uh, clinical use. It 
uh, actually, these have been tested in veterinary medicine and have been in veterinary clinical trials for some time, um, just as a matter of interest. Um, and so the technology has been under, developed for a long, uh, under development for a long time. But there's, first of all, say, in terms of messenger RNA vaccines for coronaviruses, yeah, coronavirus vaccines have, been, have proven to be very problematic. There's been a long history of trying to induce immune responses against coronaviruses that backfired, where actually what ended up happening is the vaccines started, actually, in many cases, promoted the disease. We call that vaccine-enhanced disease. What turned out is that animals that were, were these, um, so, so here's an interesting little bit of history. With the SARS coronavirus 1, when that virus, when we were dealing with that about 18, 19 years ago, there were a lot of, there were promising vaccines. That tr didn't prove to be a particularly, you know, dangerous or long-lasting outbreak. Um, but a lot of people continue to pursue the promising vaccine technology. Uh, and it appear, appeared promising because these vaccines induced very robust immune responses. But robust immune responses does not necessarily equal protection. And what ended up happening is animals in the research trials that got vaccinated ended up developing more severe disease when they got the infection. And that's because it was the wrong type of immune response that was induced. So that's right, been a me, problem with... Yeah, sure, say, let, let me let me see if I can um, get in here and just try to try to summarize this portion of it then from what you're saying. So number one, yes. we've got mRNA technology that relies on mRNA, which is very fragile, very unstable, so much so that they had to create a synthetic version of it, which then subsequently lasts way longer than the naturally occurring mRNA does. And then they packaged it in these lipid nanoparticles, which are purposely intended to go to every cell in the body or multiple organ systems, as opposed to what you really want a vaccine to do, which is stay in the arm and go to the draining lymph nodes. So I've exactly. said over and over again on previous shows, the three greatest lies we were told about this is number one, that the mRNA would stay in the deltoid muscle where it was injected. Number two, that we would eliminate the mRNA very quickly from the body, and it still says that on the CDC website today, when in fact we know it lasts for months. And number three, and the one that you could at least weigh in on uh, briefly, is that we were told no way, no how could it become incorporated into the DNA. And we have preliminary evidence in, in uh, vivo, excuse me, in vitro, in, uh, in the lab, that this does in fact happen at least in liver cells. So big problems with this technology um, in terms of how long it lasts, where it goes, and that biodistribution study that you're talking about from Pfizer, which was known well before the vaccines were launched, shows that not only does the mRNA go to essentially every major organ system, but worrisomely, the 11% of it ends up in the reproductive organs, specifically the ovaries and the testes. Um, so as you point out, in, in younger people, where those are very, very active you know, uh, areas of the body that are reproducing, cells are reproducing quickly, as opposed to in somebody uh, like me, whose ovaries are, are not as active now, um, that's a real, a real issue. Um, I want to get back to the thing that you started with, uh, and although Drew uh, and I disagree with it, I think that it's very important and telling uh, when the CDC or the NIH changes the definition of something that has been decades long and accepted in medicine, something like a, a word like vaccine. Um, and at, not only did they change the definition uh, to suit their needs during this pandemic, but another thing they changed the definition of was herd immunity. 
herd immunity until November 2020 meant one thing. And it'd been, a, again, decades old definition saying herd immunity is comprised of two things. Those people who are immunized, vaccinated against the disease, in addition to those people who have had and recovered from the disease. The CDC changed the definition to leave out the latter part, meaning they eliminated herd immunity being uh, comprised of people who also had had and recovered from it, essentially denying the importance of natural immunity. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. Talk about uh, natural immunity with regard to COVID. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, honestly, Kelly, this is preposterous. Like, I have to tell you, as an immunologist who's been teaching immunology at, at the university level, you know, graduate level, and to professional medical professionals for many years, I. I if I follow the current guidelines that are out there from our health agency, I don't even know how to teach immunology anymore, honestly. Um, or uh, if I continue on with the teaching as I have for all these years, I'll be accused of providing some kind of misinformation. The fact that natural immunity was not recognized to me is one of the most preposterous things from the last several years. They're, for, they're, they're forgetting <laughs> the key term in herd immunity is immunity. Uh, and, and just so your listeners fully understand, the whole concept between behind herd immunity is that essentially you don't need 100% of, of the individuals in a population to be immune in order to stop the transmission of a pathogen. You, you need a majority of the population to have immunity. And, and, but the key is immunity. And immunity has a very strict definition. It means indeed that you're protected from the disease and you can't transmit the causative agent to other people. And if you do not have immunity, first of all, so first of all, if you do not have that immunity, you can never achieve herd immunity. So these current COVID-19 shots that we have, they don't come close to conferring what I would call sterilizing or near sterilizing immunity. Uh, we see no differences um, in the, in the uh, viral load of people who have been, quotes, vaccinated versus those who have not. Um, people get sick with COVID-19, uh, whether they've received these shots or not. They transmit the virus, whether they've received them or not. So with these current shots, it, uh, one thing I guarantee is, first of all, it's 100% impossible. And I, 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 I wrote this in an article two years ago, uh, what it would require, what these vaccines would have to be, what they'd have to look like, uh, sort of the minimum quality of the vaccine in order to achieve herd immunity. And I predicted this outcome should immunity not actually be conferred by these shots. And, and it isn't. But the whole key is just that, immunity. And there's two ways to achieve immunity. There's recovery from natural infection or there's vaccination. And I want to point out a couple of important points here. Just really what, what we've been doing over the past two years, we, we haven't cared about immunity at all. We, we've said we don't care about immunity. What we care about is certification of somebody having seen at least two needles go into somebody's shoulder. That's really what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about a cert certification that needles went into somebody's arm. Needles going to somebody's arm does not equal immunity. And let me give you an example. Whenever you have a genetically diverse outbred population like people, you have any time you a, a apply a, um, a, a medical treatment. You always, you almost always end up with responses that follow a bell-shaped curve. Okay, 
And so when it comes to vaccines, what that means is the majority of people are going to respond moderately well to that vaccine. Then you're going to have a small portion of the population that we call the high responders. They're going to respond very robustly to that vaccine. But this is the important thing. We're also going to have a subset of the population that are the low and or non-responders. They So when, when you put these needles in people's arms, guaranteed, there are some people that are complete non-responders. They do not mount an immune response at all. It's going to have achieved zero net beneficial effect in terms of an immune response. And this is what's frustrating because you can have somebody who's recovered from natural infection, gets an immunity test done, right? Shows that they have broad-based, robust antibody responses against the virus, but we gave that no weight. That's, that's a demonstration of a certain degree of immunity. But we took a paperwork that certified needles going to people's arms. So in other words, you could have two people standing side by side. One's been naturally infected and recovered, and they could have an antibody test showing that they have a degree of immunity. And then you have another individual who has a piece of paper that says two needles went in this person's arm. And they're a non-responder, and they have mounted no immune response whatsoever against the virus, right? That person with that certificate was not segregated. The people who had the naturally acquired immunity were. And the, and the other thing I want to point out, Kelly, there is no question now. I have done my own research. I'm now up to, uh, when, I, when I do expert reports for courts now, I think I'm up to 130 peer-reviewed scientific papers that show that naturally acquired immunity against SARS-CoV-2 is superior in every way, shape, and form to what these COVID-19 shots can achieve. We're talking much longer duration of immunity. We're talking broader immunity that's more difficult for the, for the uh, new variants to escape from. Um, and we're talking qualitatively superior immunity. And this, and this is something, uh, Dr. Bridal, that we've known from the duration of time. Natural immunity has always been considered to be superior to vaccine-induced immunity. We've always can, can known that natural immunity is broad, robust, and enduring. I, I want to pile yes. on something that just came out, I believe, yesterday, which was a study out of Ohio that showed, That's I know what, Kelly, you were going to yeah. probably get to this, but, I, but I'm going to shortcut it by saying one of, the, one of the findings in that study was that the efficacy of the booster was only 30% when this, again, the CDC says the vaccine must be at least 50% to be considered viable. It was the first study on humans of the booster and at 30% efficacy. In the same study, and I'm sure you'll get to this, Kelly, they showed the more the more boosters you got, the higher the probability of infection with COVID. Guys, well, that, and that's exactly where I was going. Negative efficacy. It is not. These are yes. not only effective in preventing you from getting COVID and preventing you from transmitting it. The only two things that would possibly uh, be, justify a mandate, by the way. Um, but not only does it not stop you from transmitting it, uh, it actually increases. There's negative efficacy. You have an increased risk of getting COVID the more vaccinated you are. Is that, is that the are. IgG four mechanism, or do we think there's another mechanism? There could. Well, that's the, the, that's the interesting thing, Drew, is there, there. There's so much research that needs to be done. I, I, I believe there's probably multiple mechanisms of action. These things are quite complex, so I believe there's multiple th mechanisms. The problem is, when it comes to research, you can't get funding to do the research unless there's an acknowledged problem provide the funding for mm. and until we get to the point where there's broad-based acknowledgement of the problems that these let's just say I, I 
These vaccines, we need to get to a consensus that these vaccines are not completely safe and not completely effective. And if we can mm. at least identify that and get some general agreement on that, then the funds will start to flow for research to ask the kind of questions that, that you're proposing. But yes, the IG4, IGG4, see Drew, that gets to something that I just mentioned about the uh, one of the benefits of the um, naturally acquired immunity, as I mentioned, qualitatively, qualitatively, they're superior. One of the, I, I don't know why, we have perseverated for the past three years on trying to maximize antibody responses. And there's a couple of things that really bug me about this. A, we're trying to maximize, we keep, so the clinical studies, for example, that, that were used to justify using these shots in children, these were immuno, what we call immunobridging studies. They didn't even look at effectiveness in preventing right. uh, infection or severe disease or anything like that. What they did is they, they used um, the immune response as a surrogate indicator that these things were working, with the assumption being that if they could get higher concentrations, if they could administer these shots to children and get higher concentrations of antibodies, then surely that must equate with better, you know, with, with effectiveness and, and protection against COVID-19. And, and we've been perseverating on maximizing these concentrations of antibodies. What people need to understand is a natural immune response against a virus actually entails quite low magnitude antibody responses. The dominant natural response are actually T cell responses. Um, antibodies can only grab onto viruses for the short time span that they're outside of cells, right? They like to infect cells, they replicate, they, that, that cell dies, the virus gets out for a very short time and then infects, infects the adjacent cell. When that virus is outside of the cell, an antibody can bind to it and neutralize it. So you don't need a lot of antibodies, and it, it's all about the type of antibodies. Most of our antibodies are actually designed to, to target what we call extracellular pathogens, um, nasty bugs that always live outside of our cells. So for example, most bacteria live outside of our cells. So if you have a bacterial infection, like strep throat, for example, you're going to mount a very robust antibody response. But against viruses, it's relatively low magnitude, but it's the right types. What you're talking about, Drew, when you talk about IgG4, just for your audience, there's different what we call isotypes of antibodies. And IgG is one isotype of, of uh, five different possible isotypes. And there's different subtypes of the IgG. Well, there's certain subtypes, and IgG4 is not one of them, um, that you want against a virus because they're better at neutralizing viruses. You, if you get the wrong antibody produced, it can actually promote infection of cells that other, otherwise would be resistant to infection. So, so yeah, absolutely. There's there's um, you know a bunch of of mechanisms, and I'm and, and I'm sure the mechanisms go well beyond that as well. But but I just what I wanted to share with you is it, it's true. I do have a concern, a genuine concern, based on publicly available health data, that indeed that these shots are actually demonstrating negative efficacy now. So I saw this in, in the public health data where I live in, in Ontario, Canada. I recently served as an expert for a court case in New Zealand. And I was looking at the public health data in New Zealand, for example. And what's interesting there is in New Zealand, they have 90% uh, of the population has received one or more shots. But this is interesting. When it comes to COVID-19 cases, 95% of the cases of COVID-19 have been in that population that got a shot. 
So 95% of the cases have been occurring in 90% of the population that got a shot. That means that the cases of COVID-19 are disproportionately overrepresented among those that got the shot. So in contrast, of the 5% of the population, or sorry, of the 10% of the population that did, did not get a shot, they're accounting for 5% of the cases, right? Or on average, only half the people who didn't get a shot are, get, are getting, uh, have got COVID-19. Right. And what's important when you recognize that is that's with data that has built into it a heavy bias towards making these shots look better because always what every country's doing is <laughs> they start counting the cases from the very first case that was identified. And what most members of the public forget is that for a huge period of time from when the first case was identified uh, until the vaccines were actually rolled out and, and in substantial numbers, right? There was a huge amount of time where none of, nobody in the population was vaccinated. So every case was being attributed to the unvaccinated. Correct. And, oh, and, and Kelly, from the very just, big... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, there were a couple of things that I, did, I just wanted to hit on really quickly um, before, before they get away on us, because um, Drew brought up a good point, right? Which is, and, and I don't disagree with him, that if you have a medical product and whether you want to call it a vaccine or not, but that can truly dampen the severity of disease, I, I, I totally agree. And I teach my students that, right? Um, if you can't prevent a disease, but you can prevent death from a disease, that's obviously a positive outcome. But what I, what I didn't get an opportunity to say and that I would like to, to say, Kelly, is I would encourage people to look at, for example, Pfizer's own clinical data. So we're talking about the clinical data where they are were using their vaccine, their original formulation, which was designed to target the original variant, right? The Wuhan mm -hmm. variant of right. SARS-CoV-2. And they published the New England, General, New England Journal of Medicine, a six-month update to their clinical trials. When you go there, you have, what you have to do is not only do you have to pull up the paper, but at the bottom of the website, there's a tiny, tiny little link to what we call supplementary data. Most scientists never even look at supplementary data. When you pull up that supplementary data and you have to read the entire paper very carefully, what you do is you can get the sum total of the data. And what I, I want to share with your audience, um, Kelly, is this. It's very important. So Pfizer's own data and that published study showed that there was no statistical benefit in terms of their vaccine reducing either hospitalizations or deaths. In fact, when you look at the vaccinated arm versus the, um, the, the placebo-treated group, there was actually one more death. There were nine deaths in the vaccinated group due to COVID-19. And there were eight deaths due to COVID-19 in the placebo group. Now, what's interesting is, and what a lot this is this also is very concerning, is they stopped. It, there, the agreement was that that control group. You can't have an experiment unless you have a control group. You always have to have at least one treatment group and one control group so that you can compare one variable, which is the vaccine. Four months into that trial, they ended the placebo group. They did what's called a crossover study, right? Where all the people in the placebo arm received the vaccine. And so first, so that means we only have, on average, two months worth of, of uh, safety data on these vaccines. Um, 
from that trial. But this is the interesting thing. When they vaccinated everybody in the placebo group, five more people in that placebo group died after receiving the vaccine. Now, I'm not going. So that means that you, we ended up, they ended up with 14 uh, versus eight, I think it was, in terms of numbers, deaths. Now, I'm not going to say it was higher in the vaccinated group. Um, because who knows if those people remained unvaccinated, they may have died anyways from COVID-19. We don't know. But the whole point, Kelly, is Pfizer's own data in the context of using their vaccine against the original variant for which that vaccine was designed clearly showed no statistically significant reduction in hospitalizations or deaths. And that yes. is the scientific basis, right? Combined with the definition of a vaccine. Right. That is why I personally can't really refer to these COVID-19 shots as true vaccines. Right. So it, and it also blows apart the narrative because we now know and they acknowledge the vaccines do not stop you from contracting COVID. They do not stop you from transmitting COVID to others. And there isn't a single study showing that they decrease your chance of hospitalization or death. Okay. That's so correct. all three. Yes. Uh, okay. So so there's zero. Well, so, sorry. I would say. For- so I've seen I've seen lots of public health data that suggests that. Uh, but let me put it this way: as as an expert and knowing what to look for, um, the the public health data that suggests these benefits is highly flawed. The methodologies they're using are highly flawed. So yes, I what I, yeah, I would agree second, with you though. that there are no but, really why- legitimate scientific studies. Why are we so much better off? Is it natural immunity? Is it the Omicron variants? Why are things better than in the back in the colder, the dark, darker days? Yeah, yeah, a combination of things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, CDC's own data showed way back in February of, well, now last year, um, that up to about 70% of children had evidence of natural immunity at that time. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure... That I would be surprised if there isn't anybody left on the planet, right, that hasn't had COVID-19. Uh, so absolutely, the naturally acquired immunity, right. which is, has proven to be uh, superior. There's a very interesting article that recently came out, uh, again, in a very well-respected medical journal, um, where they directly compared the, the um, cases of COVID-19 occurring in those that had received either the, the full Pfizer vaccine schedule or the full Moderna vaccine schedule or who had never received any of the shots, but had uh, proof of having been infected. And in all cases, the, the, the cases of COVID-19 were half in the group that had the naturally acquired immunity over time. So the, absolutely that plays a key role, naturally acquired immunity. Like, like, like Kelly said, the immune system has always worked and remarkably it's continued to work throughout the last three years, even though for some reason our public health officials haven't wanted to acknowledge that. And in fact, the important thing is I can tell you as a vaccinologist, I develop vaccines all the time. We, naturally acquired immunity is the gold standard. We, right. we, well, and, and we, you we, mentioned we having have controls. We, we do have, we do works. have, Dr. Bridal, we do have a control in Africa that we are ignoring. There are there is a control yes. down there we could be comparing ourselves against. Now it's you know Absolutely. these are very different populations, very different countries. I know very treacherous to make those kinds of comparisons, but you do have something that might be a reasonable control in Africa. Yes, 
Yep, well, it's 100%. part of the reason I have, I have maintained that they are so hell bent about getting um, all of us vaccinated is because I right now I constitute the control group, uh, having had COVID <laughs> and not being vaccinated, uh, and they are trying to eliminate us. They are trying to you know keep promoting vaccination because if you could eliminate the control group those people who have had COVID but never got vaccinated for COVID, then uh, if you can eliminate that, it makes it very difficult to prove that these adverse events that are occurring are a result of the vaccine itself. Um, before we're, we're running down on time, and I, there's one other really critical thing I wanted to ask you about because I get asked about it a lot and it's quite terrifying to me. Um, given the toxicity that we know, and I think everyone acknowledges of the spike proteins, talk about um, where you stand on the sanctity or lack thereof of our blood supply. Um, because the Red Cross, the American Red Cross at least, is not keeping track of whether or not blood that is donated comes from vaccinated people or unvaccinated people. And I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think, you know, that the blood supply has been tainted with potentially toxic spike protein or mRNA. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, 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 yeah, this is the kind of question uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to answer it, but these are the kind of questions that certainly get me in trouble with, um, you know, many <laughs> members of the public. Uh, but again, I, I will tell you, cause I have a very thorough understanding of the scientific literature. So I'm not going to say whether or not it's particularly problematic at this point and whether or not there's a, you know, clear risk of harms. Uh, but in terms of your question of, is there spike protein contaminating our blood supply? 100%. Absolutely, yes. And, and the, the, the literature is very clear on this now. Um, like I mentioned, there's we've people have shown spike protein in the heart, and it gets to the heart through the blood. Uh, the biodistribution study shows it gets through all the tissues, and it gets through the blood. Um, even people who are trying to downplay the biodistribution admitted that it went through the blood, uh, if nothing else, to get to the liver, where they argued that it got um, expelled from the liver uh, or, or expelled from the body. Uh, we have de a demonstration of it getting into breast milk, and it, it would get there through the blood. So there's no question that, that the spike protein, and then we have studies showing the spike protein directly measured in the blood albeit at, at and many people. So there's one study that was only 13 people, but it showed it in 11 of 13. So that tells me that the majority of the people that get these shots do get spike protein circulating through the blood. Now it's debatable is the concentration. A lot of people try and argue, well, it's very low concentrations, right? So low that surely it can't be harmful. But to which I would say, what is the demonstrated safe concentration? We don't have right. a demonstrated safe concentration. And then also I'd point out we have... Um, case studies that have shown in individuals who were evaluated after suffering severe side effects, uh, when their blood was assessed, they had very high concentrations of the spike protein, which suggesting that those who suffer severe, that there may be a correlation between the concentration of spike protein and severe side effects from the vaccine. So we have proof of principle that it can reach high concentrations. Then we had the argument that it well, gets cleared very quickly. Well, we have no stand down periods for these, right? Um, and so like people can, can, can get the, go to a vaccine clinic and get the shot and then go straight to the blood donor clinic and donate these vaccines. The biodistribution study itself showed that these vaccines are circulating at least up to 48 hours. They stopped it at 48 hours and didn't look any further, even though, especially in females, the concentrations were still escalating. Um, now we know from subsequent studies that Adam you can Paul. measure these 
For example, the breast milk study, they showed it in the breast milk up to five days later. We now have studies showing that the spike protein can be present in lymph nodes uh, up to six months later. We have clear demonstration that the spike protein can be in circulation still and detected up to six weeks after injection. So, and, and this is the thing, Kelly, what we really, so this is the point, yes, my short answer is yes, you're absolutely correct. It's, it's tainted with products. What the consequence of that is, we really don't know because again, we haven't done the research. Nobody's really openly admitting that this is a potential problem, but the risk is there. And so we do need to assess it. And I would say what we need to do is we need to do, it's a very easy study to do. You just take people who are getting the shots and draw blood samples at different time points. And we should be simultaneously be looking for the lipid nanoparticles because lipid nanoparticles on their own can cause harm. We need to be looking for the messenger RNA because the messenger RNA can cause harm. And we need to be looking for the spike protein. And we need to see at what point does it disappear from circulation. And if it does, if there is a common time point at which you can no longer detect these things, guess what? That becomes a new washout period, right? For anybody receiving the shot. Let's say after three months, we can't detect any of those things anymore. Then I would say after somebody gets a shot, we recommend they wait three months and then can donate blood. Um, but this needs to be investigated. Although then we get the interesting the, problem because like I said, we know the spike protein can circulate for at least six weeks. So if it takes two or three months, well, that's the duration of minimal immunity that these vaccines confer. Right. And many people are recommending that people take these shots every few months. So it might be theoretically possible that somebody who's getting these shots uh, serially at short time frames may never maybe should never be donating. I personally will tell you, I would not want to be infused with blood that contains any concentration of these products until I know what a safe concentration is. And these sorts of things don't, uh, Dr. Bridal, don't make you anti-vaccine. They make you pro-science, pro-safety, and pro-data. These are the sorts of things that should have been hammered out long before we had a global uh, distribution of these vaccines. We simply, these are questions that need to be answered. I know we are running down the clock. I want to bring up the one last question. Uh, anybody who's listening to you, Somebody might want to argue with you or with me in our interpretation of a particular study, whether or not we've interpreted the data correctly or, or over or underestimated the risk, whatever. But the idea that you, like me, have been censored, ridiculed, derided, uh, had hit jobs against you, cannot go um, unnoticed. And I really appreciate this platform that uh, uh, Drew has made available to me and to guests that I brought on. Um, talk at least briefly about what's going on with you. You have a storied career uh, in healthcare. You're incredibly well-educated, uh, and yet people have come after you and managed to really try to impugn your uh, your character and your clinical and professional judgment. Um, talk about where you are with uh, with your current case. Yeah, thanks, uh, Kelly. So, yeah, I also really appreciate uh, that that Drew um, allows us to talk about this stuff openly, because uh, that, that's all I'm about is is uh, openly talking about the science. And we and we used to be able to do that. And and that's what that's what uh, is that a was just called science. It should be a characteristic. 
of good science, <laughs> yes, is being able to yeah. openly discuss things and, and have dissent. Uh, I serve on grant review panels and have been an award-winning grant reviewer for many years for our national uh, granting agency, for example. I mean, that's the whole purpose of a grant review panel. You sit around and you debate the science and, uh, and sometimes you disagree and you hammer, you know, and eventually you try and come to a consensus on, on things, or at least as best you can, or identify where the weight of the science rests. And that's what has shocked me. Uh, I actually was invited to a parliamentary press conference uh, about, a, about a year and a half ago um, in Canada, in our federal parliament. It was the first, uh, so it was a parliamentary press conference about the censorship of physicians and scientists in Canada. And it was the first pre um, parliamentary press conference in our country's history that was censored. And it was about censorship. It's ridiculous. And so a lot of what happened, like I said, I, I, I was actually, I was on mainstream television routinely because my expertise in vaccinology was highly respected. I was on national news programs throughout Canada being asked. I was had concerns about the speed at which these vaccines were coming out. I was giving guidance on what we needed to look for in terms of the quality and nature of these vaccines and what they needed to accomplish in order to be successful. And then, like I said, I gave an interview where I brought up these three apparently controversial things. But this is the point, Kelly, that I want to point out. None of those things are considered controversial anymore. People are openly talking about myocarditis and have for a long time. Uh, there's no question that it's linked to the vaccines uh, and, and then the biodistribution and the bioactivity, the spike protein. And to me, the true sign of an expert is that you can see patterns in the data. You can look at raw data. You can look at uh, data that's not particularly highly refined. And if you if you're really an expert, you can see the patterns and you can you not only can you follow the science then, but you can see where it's leading to. And. You know, and there, so the reality is a year and a half ago, that was super controversial. None of the people, I mean, I, there was a, a very well-coordinated smear campaign that was initiated within 24 hours of that interview happening. Um, there was a fake website that went up, fake Twitter account, uh, all kinds of things to destroy my career. My career is permanently damaged. And I was just speaking the truth to a, a, a member of the public who asked me a question, and I was just presenting the science as I understood it as an expert, right? It turns out I had foresight, which real experts do. Um, nobody right. has ever apologized to me about that. Um, and my career not. is just permanently harmed. But I guess, you know, I guess the point is I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything differently now. I didn't do anything differently a year and a half ago than I did five years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago when the media was interviewing me and asking me scientific questions. And you're right, I'm constantly... Uh, called an anti-vaxxer, yet I'm a vaccinologist. I love vaccines. Right. I make vaccines. I promote vaccines. Well, well, God bless you for your for your courage. We appreciate you being here and sharing your expertise with us. I promise you, you will go down on the right side of history, uh, and that's what we we all need to rely on. So, uh, without people like you, we would be in the dark. And so, I appreciate you being here. Well, thanks. Thank you, Doctor Bridal. Thank you. And uh, we may check back in with you at some point down the road as more of this stuff comes to light. Because as you've said, there's more research to be done and we would happily review that to you, God willing, if we get to it. Well, yeah, there's uh, exactly. lots of stuff I'd love to chat with you about this, Drew. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, sir. Uh, and for Kelly. Uh, oh, by the way. Oh, Susan. We've had several people on the restream and the rumbles say that they lost a significant other or a loved one, mm -hmm. child, 
after the vaccine. And I just want to say our hearts and prayers go to you, you and your families. And I, I can't, there's no words for this. There's no words. And, and we oh. can't, maybe we had to do a show just one time where people get to share their stories, but, but we're, we, it's, it, you know, there's a lot of people hurting. A lot of people have gotten hurt. A lot of people right. are hurting. Uh, and, yeah. and it, it's, we, we know it. That's why Kelly and I are doing these shows. We want to, we want to reduce those risks. And as it pertains to reducing risk, you and I have talked very quickly about the NFL player that went down mm -hmm. before we do. I just want to point out one quick thing that uh, Dr. Bridal brought up. It's interesting how his expertise is in da data and science. We as clinicians, as experts in clinical medicine, do exactly the same thing. We see the patterns, we rely on our judgment, right. and then we can predict kind of where things are going. And then the science catches up with us typically. It's our impressions right. that usually come first. No, I, I posted the other day and I, I stand by this. I said, if by conspiracy theorist, you mean I'm able to see patterns, recognize anomalies, question when we are doing something that we've never done before and dare to question the quote experts, then yes, I'm a conspiracy theorist. This is something that we've always done, Drew. This is what makes a good clinician and a good scientist. Uh, so the fact that yep. we are being ridiculed for doing that now is really very dangerous. Odd, odd and dangerous. Yeah, dangerous. Odd, but you're right. It's actually dangerous. And then as it pertains to the tragedy with uh, Damar Hamlin, um, you know, there's lots of possible causes there. It's, it was strange to me to see everybody run to Commodio. Um, I mean, that's a, it's certainly a very high probability, a real possibility, but very rare in football. Very, like unheard of. I would call, I, Usually from a baseball yeah, to, to or a hockey clear. puck. Well, to, to be clear, Commodio Cordia, it means, you know, is, is the... Um, the production of a cardiac dysrhythmia, you know, meaning the heart begins beating erratically or not at all as a result of a direct blow to the, to the chest. It is incredibly yeah. rare in general, but it is almost unheard of without a projectile. And by a projectile, what I mean is it's usually yeah. something that is a baseball, a softball, something that directly, which is why when many of us who trained in CPR, you train when somebody has a cardiac arrest, their heart stops, is to do a pre, what we call a precordial thump, which is to take a closed fist, the size of a baseball, a projectile, and very firmly thump somebody in the middle of the chest with the idea that you could disrupt the abnormal rhythm and get it back into a functional rhythm. The idea yeah. that it would occur during football from a relatively tangential blow and with all of the safety equipment, the reason people wear shoulder pads and breastplates and all of that is to diffuse those blows so that there isn't a direct yeah. blow. And it's why uh, that type of injury is extraordinarily rare. As I said, it's really was almost reportable to happen without a projectile. So I don't see that. And, What's concerning and, to me but, about but, what but happened it's possible. It, it Go ahead, go ahead. It's possible. It's possible. It is yeah. possible that it yeah. was a direct blow. It is possible that yeah. uh, Damar Hamlin had an underlying or has an underlying a congenital heart condition that was um, hadn't been uh, diagnosed. Also very unlikely given the amount of scrutiny and the extensive testing that goes on in the NFL uh, prior to that. It's mm -hmm. much more common to see something like that happen in a high school basketball player who hasn't had right. extensive cardiac workup. By the time somebody makes it to yeah, the or, NFL, yeah. they, 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 yeah. have, they have That's had, right. but 
certainly possible. Maybe he's got an underlying congenital issue. Um, There are other options. What's concerning to me is that I'm I'm expected to consider those options as rare as they may be, but I am not allowed in the court of public opinion to consider the elephant in the room, which is could this in fact be a vaccine-related thing given the massive increase we have seen in sudden deaths of athletes since these vaccines were rolled out. And and you and I have been discussing this for the last three months, or COVID, or COVID plus vaccine. We were seeing these things and no one is asking the question, what's causing all this? And that is a tragedy. And some kid almost, you know, Hamlin almost died because I think I'm hearing that things are going well and thank God he's probably going to do okay. Just So the setup is for it to do well. But but my God, I mean, it could have been a pulmonary embolus. It could have been Wolf Parkinson White with a, you know, with a tract, you know, accessory tract. It could have been a myocarditis. It could have been a million things. Uh, and we'll have to find out. I just weird to me that everyone ran to Camosio, but okay. Uh, and that, and that for you, I guess you got shit on Twitter. You got crapped on for asking about the vaccine today. And, and I've been asking about his COVID status too. Let's hear what the COVID status. Maybe he had COVID three weeks ago. And there's know. been a lot of. There's been people maybe saying that he had a vaccine on the 26th of December, but we haven't verified that I, fact. I, I think that Why don't they just tell us when it was so that we it's, know? It's not our business we, It doesn't yet. become well, a I think, Twitter but, but there is a public health issue here, and Kelly, go ahead and state it. Right. There is a public health issue. And that's why what I asked, and I truly believe, while I am the first person to respect people's personal health history, this is a public health issue. If you are sitting at the food court at the mall and people start vomiting and having diarrhea, you have a right to ask where they got their food Um, because that's a public health issue. There's an ongoing potential threat to other people. Likewise, when we are we see somebody drop down, you know, have a cardiac arrest on national television in the midst of a controversy about the efficacy and safety of these shots, we have a right to know was this person vaccinated and could this be vaccine related? Or COVID. To go back or COVID. Or COVID. But let's go back for a second, Drew, to this. Many people have criticized me for saying that there isn't actually an increase in sudden deaths in athletes. It's just Mm. that we're more aware of it now. I refute Mm. that. There was a huge study, 38-year study done by the International Olympic Committee going from 1980 to 2004. um, I'm sorry, 2000. Yeah, 2004. Um, that uh, it was it went back 38 years is all I could say. Um, and they looked yeah. at the average number of sudden cardiac deaths in athletes, and it came out to be an average of just under 29 per year. Was so say 29 athletes per year suffered from sudden cardiac death. We now are over 1,600 since January of 2021 when the when the vaccines were rolled out. 1,600. Just in that. So that is more than that 38 years combined. Okay. Something is going on. And we are required as clinicians, we are qu- required as physicians and public health people to look into that and to ask that question what is it? Which is why when people criticize me for asking the question, I would say, nah, I should be ashamed of myself. I should be ashamed if I don't ask those questions. You should be ashamed if you yeah. don't ask those questions and you call yourself yeah. a clinician or a public health expert, because that's your job. Yep. I, I, I completely agree. All right. Let's let it lie till we get more information. Uh, and, uh, 
Oh, here we are. Here's your, I guess, one of your tweets. Yeah. We're on the age of a new year. Yeah. It's high time we regain common sense, embrace autonomy, assume personal responsibility, engage in critical thinking, accept risk, and return to the old normal. Facts, not fear. There you go. <laughs> Kelly Victory, everybody. There she is, the hold, real. Hold, holding a, Kelly a, what Victor. are you holding, a fish? <laughs> What are you, a trout? What are you holding there? Yes. What is that? Yes. It's my, I was fly fishing. I was fly fishing. Of course you were. Of course you were. All right, listen. Great to see you. I'm glad we're all back. Let's get a, let's hope in 2023 we can really answer these questions and and help prevent future difficulties and do it. You know, get COVID right and get vaccine therapy right. Let's get it right. That's all we're looking for. Absolutely. We're not looking for a villain. We're not looking for. We're not looking to be right. We all we want to get right is for our patients. Not that you and I should be and right, but that we get it right no. for our patients. And for the love of God, can we return to civility in discourse? Um, yeah. Why yeah. we can't have these discussions without people making ad hominem attacks and uh, you know cussing is absolute insanity. Let's get it right. It's Let's weird. have robust, vigorous debate and uh, be respectful in the meantime. And uh, go ahead and put that uh, upcoming list on the screen, if you would, uh, uh, Caleb. Yeah, we've I got think some we have, good. Uh, Paul we've got Alexander. some good guests coming up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Paul Next Alexander's, week, Paul coming, Alexander's back. coming back. Yeah, yep. we have. I'm going to speak to Dr. Li Meng Yen, who is a was a Chinese scientist, and get some ideas from her. Cole, Ryan Cole's coming back. My uh, Navy SEAL staff member, Remy Adelike, is coming in tomorrow to, to give me his thoughts on how we all did uh, tonight's show, eight o'clock uh, e e on Fox. Yeah, on Fox and Network Fox Special and Forces. Go check it out. It's uh, you'll see me get my ass handed to me. Set your DVRs. <laughs> yeah, shit goes. Shit happens. Uh, and um, was it's oh, I want to. I'm going to talk from Paul Alexander and ask him. I want to hear more about what happened in that room where they decided to make six feet the social distancing norm. There's that oh, you know, mandate. Yeah. Like what exactly went down? I was so shocked when he told us last time. I was like, oh my god. Now I want to hear what. I want to. I want to he paint the scene for me and and who the who were the players were where that yeah. came from and. Really hear more about that. But again, thank you, Kelly. And tonight, please, everybody, do tune in to Fox 8 o'clock for the Special Forces show. You will not be disappointed. Trust me, you will not be disappointed. I don't think they'll ever be able to do television like this again. Oh. You want to play the preview, Drew? Dr. Drew right. Oh, sure. We'll put a preview yeah. up. I'll say goodbye I'll to the, Kelly. Right I mean, it's and, not, uh, we'll I mean, it's not, fly, it's not fly fishing. It wasn't fly fishing. It's not fly. <laughs> it's not trout. It's not trucha. <laughs> but, all right. Bye, guys. All right. Here we go. Here's a little preview of what's coming. You're on fire! Hold! Hold! Go, go, go! I don't care how rich or famous they are, they've entered our world and they will play by our rules. You will pick up a number and that is now you. Yes, yes sir! This is not an adventure race, this is a military selection. Let's go! You will suffer individually and you'll suffer together. Ow! That's the only way through. Why are you here? This for me is just about taking back my power. I just want to feel like I'm just like worth something. I've become a little soft. Do I still have that fire? Find another way! If they don't react properly, they could die. I don't care what anybody says, that is scary. This isn't TikTok or Instagram. You can't call your agent. No one's coming to save you. Run by, run by to the back! You don't quit it, you quit. Drop the attitude now. Fight, go! You will learn from your pain because pain retains. Come on, we can do it. Uh, I was worried about what I could get out of it. And 
and how it's all about what I can get. It's not about pass or fail on these tasks. It is all about what you've got in your head. You'll be a changed person. For damn sure, you will be a better person. I know Susan is tearing up because she does every time we play that. Uh, <laughs> I'm knows. actually having a party tonight for you. So ah, we'll I'm having friends up. over to watch it with us so I, we can all cry together. Well, you'll see. You'll and get, you'll get a load of it. With happiness that you made it out alive. Yes. I'm, I can tell my full story tomorrow. Uh, well, <laughs> soon. I can tell my full story soon. So <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Well, uh, I, at least I can talk about what you see tonight. All right, yeah. everybody. Thank you for so being here. Share if you care, everybody. Uh, and we'll get Ramy in here tomorrow to talk about his experience uh, and his story. And uh, and then I, I really urge you to listen to the interview I do with Dr. Um, Lee Meng. Lee Meng. Lee Meng Yan. Because uh, I heard her on a on a, a Twitter Spaces, and she she's not famous. An, she she's has an Chinese. extraordinary story to tell, and I just thought I'd want to hear more about it. So inside, uh, scoop. and Susan has been very concerned, aware, concerned about what went on in China <laughs> as far as this research. And I thought this might be a really good. We don't one. use How the word for a conspiracist <laughs> or or paranoid. I'm okay, not to use you need paranoid. to. Those aren't good words paranoid. for us. I. I, and I and I know Caleb has to get some childcare. I could tell by the, when he ran the credits at the top of the hour. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> I've I ran get, those credit, credits twice through by now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, thank you, thank you, everybody, and we will see you tomorrow at three o'clock. Thank you, Pacific Caleb, time. for all you do. Yeah, thanks, Caleb, and everybody, stay dry out here in the West. Thank you. Bye. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.